Young Alfred Stokes squinted in the London sunshine as he made sure the man had turned the corner. It's Saturday, the 11th of September, 1875, and Stokes is nervous. His former employer, Henry Wainwright, had asked him to help carry some parcels around, and at first, Stokes had looked at this as nothing more than a nice little earner before he went to meet his mates that night. But something about the parcels was off. Something about them was making him nervous. The first thing was their weight. They were far heavier than he had expected, and when Wainwright had handed him one to carry, he'd almost fallen over. But far worse than their weight was the smell. The parcels absolutely stank. What the hell was inside them? It's a question that Stokes intended to answer for himself just as soon as Wainwright had turned the corner. Confident that his former employer was now safely out of sight, Stokes slowly began to open the first parcel. The smell, only made worse by the late summer heat, was by now absolutely unbearable and Stokes was forced to turn round, almost vomiting. But the assault on his sense of smell was nothing compared to the sight he was about to behold. As he turned round and looked inside the parcel, Alfred Stokes realised to his horror that he was looking at a human head. Hello again and welcome back to the Ministry of History podcast. I'm here bringing you part two of the Henry Wainwright and Harriet Lane case. In part one, we saw how Henry Wainwright, though he was born in London's notorious East End, was far from someone who had no other option but to turn to a life of crime. Indeed, he was a professional, a brush maker, who ran his own shop, who had a wife, had children, commanded the respect of people in his community. By the standards of his time, he really couldn't have asked for much more. But of course, he did want more, and we saw how he chased after another woman. It was at this point that we were introduced to Harriet Lane, a charming young woman with dreams of making it big in one of Victorian London's music halls. Those dreams, unfortunately, have to be put on hold when she falls for Henry Wainwright and gives birth to two of his children. Wainwright sets up his illegitimate family in a second home in Mile End, and the situation seems to work for him for a while. Harriet, though, really hopes that he might leave his first wife, but as it becomes obvious that he's not going to do that, she becomes increasingly desperate and increasingly reliant on drink. Meanwhile, for Henry, by 1874, the fun is well and truly over. Harriet is increasingly alcoholic and increasingly demanding of him, threatening to expose all of his lies to his wife and children. Worse than that though, trying to balance his double life is leading him to financial ruin. At the end of episode one, we saw how Henry Wainwright decided that the perfect solution to all of his problems was to murder Harriet Lane.
This is usually the point in the podcast at which I start to plug my uh, blog or my Twitter account. But today, it's your lucky day. I'm not going to do that. What I want to do is change tune slightly. I want to start giving shout-outs to other blogs and podcasts that have really helped me through the last few uncertain and scary months. Blogs and podcasts that, I'll admit, I've taken inspiration from myself. The first shout-out I want to give is to the Backtracker History Show. Similar to this podcast and blog, the Backtracker History Show aims to take a look at some of history's lesser-known characters and stories. The last episode I listened to featured a journalist who makes a discovery about a decade-old murder in Ohio through a chance encounter with a prisoner. Now, it's not my place to reveal too much more than that. You'll have to go and listen for yourself. That's the Backtracker History Show on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. There's all types of stories on the Backtracker History Show. There's international and UK-focused ones. They also like to focus on Bristol, and this is related to another reason why you should listen to it. The narrator, Alice, who you will love, has a phenomenal Bristol accent. I could listen to it all day. In fact, it makes me a bit jealous because I've only got a boring old London accent. So, you've got great content and a phenomenal Bristol accent. What are you waiting for? Head over to the Backtracker History Show and give it a listen. Anyway, back to the Ministry of History. Today, we'll be discussing the Harriet Lane and Henry Wainwright case. We've already seen how Henry Wainwright killed Harriet Lane by shooting her three times at point-blank range. You might think that that's the end of the story, but you would be wrong. Because today, we're going to discuss how Henry Wainwright sets in motion a plan to get away with murder. And we're going to see how that plan actually has a degree of success. But we're also going to consider two questions. Firstly, will he get away with the murder? And secondly, has the murder solved his financial woes? As we're going to see, the answers to those two questions are irrecoverably linked. It's the end of September 1874, about two or three weeks since Henry Wainwright killed his lover, Harriet Lane. But some of Harriet's friends are beginning to ask questions, and they're beginning to ask those questions of Henry. Henry's starting to get a bit concerned because he knows that it wouldn't take too much for the doctors to be connected and for him to be linked to Harriet's disappearance. What to do? What to do? Well, Henry hasn't built up a successful brushmaking business by being stupid. He's got the perfect idea. What he does is write a bunch of letters explaining how Harriet has visited him and that they've gone off to Paris together and that they shouldn't be concerned about Harriet's disappearance. But of course, he's not going to sign the letters Henry Wainwright. He's going to sign them Edward Freak. Remember, before Harriet went to meet him at his warehouse just two or three weeks earlier, Henry had instructed her to tell anyone who asked that she was off to meet a man named Mr Freak. So, when Harriet's friends and family get these letters... The plan is that they just assume she's gone off to France with her new fella. 
It's not a perfect solution. I mean, people are going to think it's strange that she's just abandoned her children. And people will think it's weird that she's gone off with a new guy when she was so clearly in love with Henry. But as far as Wainwright's concerned, people thinking it's strange or bizarre is a damn sight better than having any suspicion fixed on him. He sends the letters out and it actually works like a dream. No one asks any more questions. As 1874 turns to 1875, Henry's allowing himself to think that he's out of the woods. And to be honest, it's little wonder he thinks that. Let's consider things from Henry's perspective. He's arranged for his illegitimate children to be placed in the permanent care of the friendly neighbour in Mile End. He sold the house in Mile End and he's got rid of his drunken, demanding lover who was threatening to ruin everything for him and no one's asking any more questions about where she's gone. As far as Henry Wainwright is concerned, it's a happy new year indeed. Things are really looking up. There's just one tiny little problem. His financial woes have not been alleviated in the way he had hoped. Sure, he's sold the second home, but he still has to pay some maintenance to his illegitimate children and he had accumulated a lot of debt over the previous few years. He's still massively in the red. As 1875 progresses, he decides he still needs to do something more to improve his financial circumstances. He decides to sell his shop and his warehouse in Whitechapel and move to Essex, just to the northeast of London, where rent is cheaper and he can make a fresh start. It's a perfectly sound idea, but unfortunately for Henry, it's also an idea that's going to cost him his status, his freedom, and ultimately, his life. As I've just said, selling up the shop and the warehouse and moving to Essex is a perfectly sound idea, but it's also a dangerous idea for Henry Wainwright. It's dangerous because his warehouse stores more than just brush-making equipment. His warehouse is where his dirty little secret is buried, just beneath the surface. You see, when Henry killed Harriet Lane, he hadn't really got rid of her body. He'd just quickly dug a shallow grave and stuck her body there. Now, Henry understands that it really wouldn't take much for the new warehouse owner to find Harriet's body, and then he would have a real problem on his hands. He has to dispose of the body properly before he sells the warehouse. So it is that on the morning of Saturday, the 11th of September, 1875, exactly a year since he murdered Harriet, Henry finds himself fetching his younger brother, Thomas, and bringing him to the warehouse. Thomas, for his part, is wondering why Henry seems so nervous, why he's so anxious and twitchy, but he soon finds out. Henry informs him that he needs his help to dispose of the body of a woman he murdered a year earlier. Thomas is horrified, but family loyalty wins the day. He decides he has to help and cover for his brother. The two men spend the whole day cutting Harriet's decomposing body into manageable pieces and placing them in parcels. By the end of the day, Thomas Wainwright isn't at the warehouse anymore and it's unclear why. Perhaps he had a prior commitment or perhaps he was just so sickened by what he'd been doing all day and he wanted no more part of it. 
In any case, what Henry should have done at this point was keep it to himself. Okay, maybe he needed to hail a cab to get the body out of town to wherever he was planning to dispose of it. But even then, hail the cab on your own. Put the parcels on the cab on your own. Don't involve anyone else. What he does instead is he calls for Alfred Stokes, a young man who used to work at his brush making shop. It's a disastrous decision because the parcels absolutely stink. They stink so badly that anyone is going to be curious about what's inside them. Henry makes a further disastrous choice when he leaves Alfred Stokes unattended with the parcels as he goes to hail a cab. Of course, as we saw at the start of this episode, Alfred's curiosity gets the better of him and he peers inside one of the parcels to find the decomposing head of Harriet Lane. After the initial shock, Stokes regains his composure and manages to act as if nothing is wrong when Wainwright returns. Wainwright loads the parcels onto the cab and sets off, blissfully unaware that the countdown to his capture has now begun. Alfred Stokes sees Henry off with a wave and a smile, but immediately gives chase. He makes sure that Henry Wainwright's cab never leaves his sight, all the while screaming and shouting at anyone and everyone to stop the cab, there's a body on board. In fact, he actually screams at two or three policemen who ignore him, laughing him off saying, you must be mad boy. Finally though, just as Henry Wainwright approaches London Bridge, Alfred Stokes finds a policeman who takes him seriously. The policeman orders Wainwright to halt and lets him inspect the parcels. Our murderous villain is completely thrown by this. He hadn't expected it at all. He starts blubbering and offers the policeman a bribe, perhaps forgetting that he's in no financial straits to offer anyone a bribe. It doesn't matter though, because the policeman is unimpressed and promptly inspects the parcels for himself. Of course, he finds the decomposing body of Harriet Lane and Henry Wainwright is arrested on the spot. Henry Wainwright, as we've already discussed, is many things. A shopkeeper, a business owner, a husband, a father, an adulterer, a murderer. Can we add criminal mastermind to this list? No, I wouldn't say so. Reading newspaper reports from around the time of his trial, October 1875, I can't help but laugh at Henry's defence. It's absolutely ludicrous. Henry Wainwright tells the judge and jury at the Old Bailey that the parcels weren't his and he had no idea what was inside them. What actually happened, he says, is that an unidentified mystery man approached him in a pub and paid him to take the parcels out of town. Needless to say, he's practically laughed out of court with this defence, but perhaps a more sturdy defence is offered by his lawyer, who suggests that the body in the parcels cannot be positively identified as that of Harriet Lane. This isn't actually such an unreasonable thing to say, because the body's been buried for a year and it's very badly decomposed, and remember, there's no DNA evidence or forensic evidence in 1875. Unfortunately for Henry, it's not enough. 
Harriet Lane's father testifies that he recognises a birthmark on the leg and this, coupled with the testimony of Alfred Stokes, who describes how the parcels very definitely belong to Henry Wainwright, is enough to condemn him. Wainwright is found guilty and there's only one sentence for murder in 1875. He is sentenced to death by hanging. Before we get on to Henry's execution, I just wanted to tie up a loose end before mentioning one more important thing. The loose end is that Thomas Wainwright, Henry's younger brother, is given a seven-year prison sentence for being an accessory to murder. But more importantly than that, I thought it was worth mentioning that the judge actually gives Henry Wainwright a chance to explain himself or perhaps express some remorse just before he is sentenced. But it's a chance that Henry rejects and he instead launches into a self-pitying, woe-is-me tirade against the injustice of his conviction. In fact, his speech is so egregious that the judge has to interrupt him and basically tell him to shut up. The judge then twists the knife a bit further by making the point that he completely agrees with the jury that Wainwright's guilt is not in doubt at all. I just thought it was worth mentioning that because I really wanted to drive home the point, if you didn't realise already, that Henry Wainwright was a very unsavoury character. Even with all the evidence stacked against him, even after being found guilty in a court of law, he refused to take responsibility for his actions. He was devious and selfish right until the end. And as it turns out, I really do mean until the end. Because right up until the point of his execution, Henry Wainwright refused to admit to the murder of Harriet Lane. Execution day rolled around on the 21st of December, 1875. Newspaper reports from the time describe how it was a cold, frigid winter morning. But if there was one small mercy for Henry Wainwright, is that public executions had been banned in Britain just a few years previously. He wouldn't suffer death in front of a hostile, rowdy crowd. Instead, he would die in front of a smaller, more modest crowd, gathered in the yard of Newgate Gow. Just after eight o'clock in the morning, Henry Wainwright was shuffled out into the yard he actually seemed quite calm as he was helped up the steps of the scaffold and remained calm even when the reverend offered him some last prayers. But when the hood went over his head, his breathing became heavy and panicked. The noose went round his neck, the trap door opened and Henry Wainwright's panicked breathing ceased. that concludes episode two of the Ministry of History podcast. Join us next time when we'll be changing it up a bit. We'll be moving to the swinging 60s. But remember, this is still series one. This is still a series about murder. Remember, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle. Also, don't forget to check out the blog the Ministry of History on Google, one of the top results. 
administrative history is obviously not an academic source.